Okay, so here's a quick summary. The first church is now up and running. The powerful religious people of Israel, they hate the church. No matter how much they threaten the leaders of the church, it seems to keep on growing. So they kept on persecuting the church, and that was the church's external problem. Now, one of the first internal problems that the church faced was that, well, due to their rapid growth, they didn't have a system in place to take care of the specific group of widows. So the leaders, now called the apostles, put in charge seven men called the deacons to focus on just that. And so in this roster of deacons, we now focus on one of them, Stephen. grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Now we're about to learn that Stephen's in deep, deep trouble with the religious rulers of Jerusalem. And at this point in the story, we really don't know why. I mean, did he do something offensive? I mean, all we know so far is that he performed great wonders and signs among the people, which in that culture often implied that he was healing the people who were sick. That doesn't sound too threatening to me. I mean, healing somebody is a good thing. But in the very next verse, we get a hint as to why Stephen was in deep trouble. Opposition arose, however, from the members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia, who began to argue with Stephen. So who are these Jews from Cyrene, Alexandria, Cilicia, and Asia? Well, they are Jews that don't live in Israel. And Luke tells us that they are members of this thing called the synagogue of freedmen. By the way, this means that these Jews were once slaves and are now free. I mean, understandably, these Jews had a very negative view of the people who enslaved them, which were, in many cases, non-Jews. But the first church, which was started by the disciples of Jesus, apostles, who Stephen is now representing, treats both Jews and Gentiles with the same respect and love. So these Jews, they see Stephen as a threat. So naturally, they begin to accuse Stephen and picks a fight with him. They try to take Stephen down using logic and reason. They thought they could out-debate him. I mean, they used the Bible to disprove Stephen's claims, but they kept on losing in their arguments because Stephen was so smart. So if you can't win with the wit, what do you do? What do you resort to? Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. Yeah, they resorted to lies and rumors, and this eventually led Stephen to stand trial before the Sanhedrin, which is the most powerful council in Jerusalem. They're like the, the Supreme Court of Israel. I mean, these guys, the Sanhedrin, they were the final word on pretty much everything in that culture. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stopped speaking against the holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs of Moses handed down to us. Then the high priest asked Stephen, Are these charges true? So they basically accused Stephen of speaking against this holy place, which is code for temple, the most sacred building. They believe that God lived in the temple and the law, which is 
the rules they believe that were given to them through Moses. There's over 600 of them, and these are basically the rules that they live by. Now, if I were to give you some context as to what all this meant, if you wanted a maximum punishment for somebody under Jewish law, you always, always bring up the temple and the law because these are the two pillars of Jerusalem. And the reason why you want to bring up these two things is because people like the Sanhedrin or the priests or the Pharisees or any of the religious rulers, they had their authority over other people because of these two things. I mean, if there was no temple or law, there would be no Sanhedrin, priest, Pharisee, or, or teachers of the law. Now, at this point, I think Stephen could have said something that what would I would have said. Basically, no, this is not true. These accusations are false. No, instead, he produces the second longest sermon in the entire Bible or the longest sermon in the book of Acts. He ends up giving them a history lesson of Israel, basically the Old Testament. I mean, Stephen gives the most concise summary of the Old Testament. I mean, he begins by telling a very familiar story, a story about how Israel was founded. God called Abraham out of a tribe and made a pact with him. And Abraham had a son, Isaac, and Isaac had a son, which is Jacob. And Jacob had 12 boys who came to represent the 12 tribes of Israel and so forth. Now, you may think that what Stephen is doing here is a bit offensive because he's giving a history lesson of Israel to the most powerful and smartest people of Israel. I mean, they already know this stuff, but that's nothing compared to the insult that Stephen dishes out in the next part. See, while Stephen is recapping their nation's history to them, he's also retelling it with a particular lens. Instead of talking about the glory stories of the Old Testament, Stephen highlights the many stories of their failures. Basically, God sending a messenger for his people and his people rejecting that messenger. Like, for example, Stephen says of the 12 sons of Jacob, God chose one, Joseph, to rescue the other 11, but the 11 sold him into slavery. Now, when you hear this story as a Jew, most of them like to associate themselves with Joseph. But Stephen implies that Israel is more akin to the 11 more than the one. Here's another example by Stephen. Out of Egypt, God raised a man named Moses and God sent Moses to his people to rescue them. But as it states in verse 25, Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. And a few years later, as Moses was trying to rescue God's people by pulling them away from Egypt and into the desert, Stephen said, but our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. God sent Moses to give God's people guidance and his people said, no, we want the golden calf instead. And Stephen gives example after example of God sending a prophet to his people and his people rejecting that person. He is telling the Israel story in a way that they are not used to hearing. They're used to hearing stories of God's favor upon their people, but Stephen centers his story around the failure of Israel. I mean, it's the same players, it's the same characters, but with a different perspective. Now, this reminds me of a French artist. His name is Felice Verini, which does this thing called anamorphic illusions. Now, if you don't know what that is, it's basically a specific kind of art where you have to have the right perspective to see the bigger picture. For example, if you were to walk into this building, you would probably see some random lines and some random colors and blots of paint. But if you walk over to the intended spot, that the artist wants you to stand, you will see the full picture. And in this case, it's a bunch of perfectly drawn circles, but you wouldn't have known that if you didn't know where you were supposed to stand. Now imagine if someone placed the most comfortable couch you could think of in the wrong place in that building. And while you're enjoying the luxury of that soft cushion, you might conclude that there are a series of random curved lines and colors. But if you took the time to leave that cozy seat and stood where 
you were supposed to stand, then you would see the full picture. See, what Stephen is doing here in his sermon is that he's showing the Jewish leaders that their understanding of Jewish history is seen from the wrong perspective. These Jewish leaders have sat comfortably in the seat of the, the temple system, so they could only focus on the Bible stories that, that focus on the glory of the power of Israel. But if they were to see their own story, their own history from God's perspective, the right perspective, they will see that they are reading their scriptures from rose-colored glasses. So Stephen critiques the thing that made these Jewish leaders feel superior over other people. They happened to be born into the right family and they were the right gender and they were the right race. You see, they believe that God chose them over everyone else in the world and the temple which stood proudly in Jerusalem was proof of that. So Stephen says, the most high does not live in a house made by human hands. He's talking about the temple. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? In essence, Stephen is arguing, you do not have exclusivity to God. You are like everyone else in the world. Everyone has equal access to God now. He doesn't live in that building over there. You think that you can contain God in a building? And because of that, Stephen's saying, hey, this thing that you thought gave you more value than everyone else, I'm going to pull that rug right underneath from you. Okay, so this is where it gets good. See, because not only is Stephen dismantling the very system that allows these men to, to feel superior over other people, he's actually introducing a new updated paradigm to them. So if you read through this sermon very carefully, you'll discover that from the very beginning of the creation of this nation, when Abraham was called out of a tribe, all the way to the time where Moses walked through the desert, the very thing that guided them was God. Stephen here is claiming that God has been trying to move history forward one nudge at a time. So Abram, when he was living in his hometown, God nudged him so that he would go on this long journey to start this new nation. Moses was nudged from being in the desert into Egypt so that he could go and rescue God's people. So throughout history, God has been nudging people not to a destination, but just to the next step in this big picture that God is trying to paint. And for a while, it worked. Abraham, Joseph, Moses, but over time, God's nudges didn't work anymore. When God sent another push to his people to change, they resisted. When God sent prophets, they persecuted and even sometimes killed them. So Stephen, he concludes his sermon by saying this, You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. And basically what he's saying here is, hey, God is on the move and yet, you're not willing to move with him. We are all part of this movement, this continual movement of God. There was once a time when there was no laws and there was no temple, and God nudged us into an era of law and temple. And now God is trying to nudge us out of that into something better, but you're trying to implement it even more because you benefit from the temple and the law system. So you could totally see how the Jewish leaders at this point are extremely frustrated with what they're hearing from Stephen. But Stephen doesn't stop there. He turns his dial up to 11. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. He's talking about Jesus here. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. Now, if you know how the story ends, Stephen is martyred. He's killed after this, and you can see why. That was the nail in the coffin for him. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus stood at the right hand of God. 
Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. I mean, can you believe it? Usually at the end of a sermon, a pastor will usually close in prayer or give a benediction. But in this one, he looks up and says, I see Jesus. This is Luke's way of saying that Stephen was right there in step with God. He was seeing him eye to eye and he was totally in sync with them. But let's see how the Sanhedrin responds to this part of the sermon. At this, they, the Sanhedrin, covered their eyes and, yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragging him out of the city and began to stone him. Now, this scene described by Luke was meant to draw a contrast between Stephen and the Sanhedrin. While Stephen was actually aware of God's movement through history and even aware of God at that moment, the religious rulers refused to step back and observe. I mean, they covered their ears and started to yell as if to imply that they would choose ignorance over joining in on what God is doing in their midst. And the reason why they would rather be ignorant about what God is doing in their midst is because they were already comfortable with the system that they were born into. They would rather ignore God than to give up their comfort and power. I mean, the contrast between these two groups is extremely stark. The Sanhedrin, they were willing to kill for their convictions, while Stephen, well, he was willing to die for Jesus's convictions. And the evidence that his heart was aligned with Jesus's, well, listen to Stephen's last words before he died. Then Stephen fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep, which is code for he died. These are the same last words of Jesus. And the final thought that Stephen expressed is that of forgiveness and love. I think the takeaway from this passage is that it's important to take inventory from time to time to see what God is actually doing in our midst. I mean, the church today, we do very similar things to the Jews that Stephen was accusing. I mean, we hear stories about this all the time. There was a group of people that were nudged by God to do something. So they worked really, really hard to find out what God was doing and they jumped in on it and they sat on it and they built upon it and they built an institution on top of that. And then eventually this place became beneficial and comfortable to them. And while the nudge from God was genuine and much needed at the time, if we build a religious system around it, we may end up ignoring what God wants us to do next. So what Stephen's telling us is that it's extremely important for us to step back every once in a while, open our eyes and ears and see what God is doing next and join in on that. Then do it again in a few years. Otherwise, we'll be just as deserving of the accusation that Stephen gave to the Sanhedrin, which is, you always resist the Holy Spirit. So church, may your eyes and ears remain open to the movement of God around you. And may we continue to be responsive to the nudges that God gives us so that we become more and more like Jesus. And may we all experience heaven together. God bless.